Well, good morning, everyone. Would you remain standing? Uh, My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at New City, and it's a joy to be able to share the word with you this morning. And I want us to give attention to our passage today, which is found in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is the word of truth to you this morning. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. Those desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens He never changes or cast a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. The word of God to you today. You can be seated. So I have two sisters. I'm the youngest of three. My mom is here with me on the front row. And one of my sisters is a twin. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been asked, are we identical? Um, Probably gave me a complex from a young age. We are not identical. Um, But I've never been alone. I've always had a twin uh, sibling with me. Um, She's five minutes older than me, so um, she jokes that that was the best five minutes of her life. (laughs) But my twin sister, Amy, it's been a joy um, to journey with her. And Amy is many things, uh, many wonderful things, and she's a truth teller. She will tell the truth. Um, And so I'm so grateful for that. Most days, most moments, I'm grateful for that. And I wonder in your circle of influence, whether it's a sibling or a friend or a community group member or someone you work with, if you have a truth teller in your circle of influence, if you have someone that is gonna shoot straight with you, uh, if you have someone that's going to tell the truth and no matter what kind of the consequences are, you know, just prize being able to see things as they are and communicate that, that that's a real, gift. Maybe let me ask it another way. Is there a person when you don't necessarily want to know the truth that you especially try to avoid in your circle of influence? Well, James, as we study his letter to his congregation, remember uh, the book of James was written as a pastoral letter to his congregation. And I want you to see James as a truth teller. He is the person in your circle who's going to tell you the truth, the true story. And so in many ways, 
uh, James to his congregation and to us more broadly as his congregation is going to guide us through life principles and truth as a big brother, as someone who's going to tell us the truth to help us and especially to help us answer the question that we've been wrestling with together, which really is the big idea of the entire letter. How do I get through what I'm going through? And I wonder how many of you this morning in the room, for those of you who might be watching us online, are asking this very question. How am I gonna get through what I'm going through and my family in the meeting that I'm gonna be in tomorrow, in the circumstance or situation, the grief that I'm journeying through, the loss that I'm experiencing, how am I gonna get through what I'm going through? How is a real Jesus that I believe in gonna be real to me and my problems? And this is what James wants to speak to. And so in the entire book, but especially in our passage today, verses 12 through 18, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I really wanna encourage you to open them with me or if you have it on your phone or you have the app, um, it's already preloaded there with the notes and follow along and take a few notes because what he's writing about is authentic life and nothing less is at stake in our passage today. And up until verse 12, James has been focusing his letter and his writings to the congregation that he really loves pastorally on the testing of their faith through very difficult and harsh circumstances. So. Again, just in context, this is a group of people that have been displaced from their homes. They've been greatly persecuted by the Romans and Jewish leaders. And so James writes to them about that testing and the joy that can come out of that. But with just the slightest variance in language, in verse 12, he shifts the focus from outside circumstances that test our faith to internal conditions that can tempt us. He shifts the focus from what's happening outside of us to what is actually happening within us. And the two words that he uses here to talk about the outside and the inside are testing and temptation. And they're both found in James chapter one, verse 12. Look at it again with me. James writes, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. There's our two words, maybe underline them or highlight them on your phones. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, again, in context, this is a group of people that under the cover of darkness have lost their homes, their businesses, their ability to worship and gather in the temple, their inheritance, their identity as Jewish followers now of Jesus who have been converted to follow Jesus and have seen him as the true Messiah sent from them. And now most of what they've experienced since they decided to follow Jesus is trouble. And this strikes at the heart of the story that a lot of the world would tell us about faith, which is if you believe in something or someone or specifically in Jesus, everything's just gonna be fine. Once I find Jesus and I follow after him, I won't experience any more trouble. And nothing could be further from the truth here. In fact, all they've experienced is trouble. And it's made them ask the question and step back like many of you are right now, how am I gonna get through what I'm, what I'm going through? And I want you to pay attention to a word here in verse 12. It's the second word. God, what's the word there? Blesses. Let's talk about that word for a little bit because it's more than a cultural hashtag. 
Um, many people believe that the way God blesses us is by sparing us from difficulty or trouble. And in fact, the audience that James is writing to specifically and more broadly to us, believe that a multitude of possessions, be it uh, children or land or material items, that they showed the favor of God. And this has roots in Jewish uh, history that God would show favor by how many children you had or or the the amount of land you had or livestock or possessions and that he would show his displeasure by taking those things away. And again, in the context of our passage, so much has been taken away from these Jewish Christians and they had to be wondering, God, where are you? And what have we done to deserve your displeasure? Why are we not being blessed? And pay attention to the language. James says, no, you are blessed. God blesses those who patiently endure both testing and temptation. And we'll talk about the difference between the two. But there's a story, there's an untrue story, even in faith circles, especially in faith circles, especially in Christian faith circles, something known as prosperityism, that if you love Jesus and you do all the things that you're supposed to do, that God's going to bless you with material items. And nothing could be further from the biblical truth. In fact, oftentimes the people that are heroes of the faith go through all kinds of trouble, have all kinds of things stripped away from them. And this understanding of blessing through material items or things on this side of eternity is undone with the incarnation of Jesus and his kingdom principles and values. What do I mean by that? Probably one of Jesus's most famous sermons, in fact, many people would say it is his most famous sermon, is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And you can find it in Matthew chapters five through seven. And the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are what's known as the Beatitudes. These kingdom principles that invert the way that we see the world. And in many ways, James is mirroring the Sermon on the Mount. I've mentioned that there are 105 different references in the book of James to the Sermon on the Mount thematically. So James, as the younger brother of Jesus, is looking to his big brother and sharing many of the kingdom principles that Jesus has already preached about and shared about and reminding his people about that. In fact, let me share another word as we think about this whole idea of blessing and what it really means to be blessed and the paradox of how James is writing about blessing here. Jesus shares through the apostle John in the book of Revelation to a group of churches and he has an instruction to them in the first couple of chapters of Revelation. And Jesus shares with the church of Laodicea these words in Revelation 3.17. You say, this is Jesus speaking, you say, I'm rich. I'm, I'm hashtag blessed. I've become wealthy and I need nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. Whoa, that is a combination of punches. And it comes from the mouth and the heart of Jesus. And what he's striking against is this understanding that I can look at my outsides and my material goods and think that I'm blessed. 
if you go back in our passage to what Nick preached about last week, he says, listen, if you have material goods and you're, you're rich in this world, just, just have a humble heart. And if you're poor, take, take, take solace in the fact that you're rich in Christ. In other words, he turns our values upside down with these new kingdom values. I love what Beth Moore says, and she has a great study on the book of James, by the way. And she, she says, the incarnation of Jesus stood blessing on its head. Glory graced a wooden manger, flesh veiled beauty, I love this, bandages wrapped crowns around the broken, bad news gave way to good. This is how Jesus said it in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed, maybe you've heard this before, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, And you want to know what another word for blessing is in the Greek translation to the English? Happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. How can that be possible? Everyone watch this. Because the heart that is broken is the heart that is open. A heart that is broken is a heart that is open. And what Jesus means when you're poor in spirit and when you mourn, when your heart is broken, and so many of you in the room today carry a broken heart, when your heart is broken, it's open. It's open to receiving something beyond what this world has to offer. You know, guys, oftentimes you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And for some of you in the room this morning, for some of you watching right now, Jesus is all you have. And I wanna tell you some good news. Jesus is enough. And that's what this passage is about. This understanding of the paradox of you're actually blessed when you patiently endure trials and temptations of every kind because you have the crown of life. And let's talk about that word for a second. Back to verse 12, the crown of life. That phrase, that little word appears twice in the New Testament right here in our passage, James 1:12, And it appears again in Revelation 2. And guess who's saying it in Revelation? James's big brother, Jesus. And he's talking this time to the church at Smyrna. And I wonder like, maybe this was like a table conversation that their family had. And maybe this was like a phrase that was used in the family of Mary and Joseph. And now both brothers, James and Jesus are the only two that mention this phrase, the crown of life. And I love what Beth Moore says about the crown of life is fixed to our heads through bandages. Through brokenness, we understand life. You know, C.S. Lewis said that the role of any good teacher is to remind us of what we already know, but we don't want to remember. The role of a teacher is to remind us of what we already know, but we don't want to remember. And for James's audience, they had heard, many of them have heard or heard told about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these kingdom principles. But in their desperation, in their brokenness, they didn't want to remember it. And so oftentimes the scriptures for us, the word of truth, the true story is reminding us of what we want to forget. That's what James is doing here. He wants us to remember. In fact, all of the scriptures could be summarized in one word. Remember, remember who God is. Remember who you are. Remember who other people are. 
James says specifically here, look at verse 13. He uses our word. He says, and what? And remember, there it is. Well, what am I supposed to remember? In my brokenness, when I'm longing to know how am I gonna get through what I'm going through and my dark night of despair when I'm experiencing grief and when I'm wondering how all this is gonna come together, what am I supposed to remember? I'm glad you asked. You're meant to remember two things. James says, remember what is within you and remember who is good and perfect. Remember what is within you. Look at verses 13 through 15. And remember when you are being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation, verse 14, comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Okay, so here's what I want you to do if you have your scriptures open. I want you to look at verses two through four in James one. And James is gonna describe, remember this passage, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. So again, he's flipping this understanding. He's reframing trials and, and, and discouragement and difficult times and trouble as an opportunity to experience joy. And remember, we gave a definition of joy, just in case you missed it. Joy, if you spell out that word in your notes, is when zero is between you and Jesus. When there's nothing between Jesus and you, that's what joy is. And so James says, count it all joy when you experience these trials and trouble and difficulties because it has a way of stripping away everything else in our lives and the, the, the ways that we rely on other false idols or other little gods, whether it's finances or relationships, they get stripped away to where Jesus is all we have and Jesus is all we need. And then he says, but here's what happens when, when your faith is tested in that and it's able to grow up. He says, you know, when faith's tested, endurance grows and you should let it grow because when it's fully grown, it's mature and it's complete and it's lacking nothing. And so the pathway, everyone watch this, the pathway to spiritual maturity, how many of you, don't even raise your hand, but how many of you wanna grow in your relationship with Jesus and following him? How many of you wanna be closer to Jesus next year than you are this year? James says the pathway to spiritual maturity in following Jesus is messy. And it's full of lots of trouble. And you should count it joy because it's an opportunity to more, know Jesus more. Now, I want you to see the opposite, the counter mirror of this is in verses 13 through 15. So he says, look, when faith grows up, it's tested, it's mature, it's complete, right? There's this wisdom of experience because it's, it's endured all of these, these different tests. But when sin grows up, this is what it looks like, verses 13 through 15. It starts with a distorted desire, which becomes a sinful action. And when it's allowed to just hang out there and just grow, it becomes what? What's the end goal? When sin grows up, what does it become? Death. When faith grows up, it becomes life. Life and death are at stake here. This is what James is talking about. And this strikes at the narrative of our world, doesn't it? Because the story that the world is telling each of us loudly and consistently is you do you. Hey, follow your dreams. 
Let your conscience be your, have you heard that? Yeah. Let your conscience be your guide, right? What is your truth? Hmm. Live in your truth. I've got to share my truth here. And James says, no. If you let your conscience be your guide, if you let your feelings drive you, if you let what's within guide your heart, it's a disaster. You're going to make such a mess of your life. This is an untrue story, but the story that you and I, our children, our grandchildren are hearing on a consistent basis is you got to look within and you just got to follow your feelings and follow your heart. Whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you happy. And James says, no, what comes from within drags you away. It leads you down a sinful path. And if you let that grow, it becomes death. This is like every year we read a story about someone who raises exotic animals of some kind. This is like Tiger King. And you read these stories and just from the headline, you know how this is going to end, right? I had this pet python. It was really cute. I kept feeding it. I kept feeding it. I kept feeding it. It got bigger and bigger. It sleeps in my bedroom. It ate me. <laughs> and you read it and you go, yeah, it's python. Um, you, you can't have a tiger or a python in your bedroom, right? It's a predator. And you're feeding it and you're allowing it to grow. And guess what it did? It did what it's designed to do. It ate you, right? Because you're not its owner or what, you, it's cute and cuddly. No, it, it's designed to do that. And oftentimes we treat sin like a little cute exotic pet. And it's, look at my little pet python here or my little tiger. And then we feed it and we feed it and we feed it and it devours us. So just remember, when you're dancing with the devil, he's not dancing, he's devouring. And listen, everyone watch this. You're being hunted. Sin is hunting you. It's clever, it knows you, it's hunting you. The Bible says that sin and the author of sin, our enemy, is like a lion who is waiting to pounce on you, studying you, knowing your proclivities, knowing the things to tempt you with. So let me give you some life-saving, really, facts about temptation from our passage here, if you're taking notes. Verses 13 through 15, James says some really important things, some really heavy and important theological things about God. First of all, everyone is tempted. Okay, it's not a sin to be tempted. It is common to man to be tempted. In fact, Jesus was tempted. Temptation is common to all of us. None of us will escape temptation, but not all temptation is the same. Here's the second thing. God does not tempt. Look at verse 14. It comes naturally to us to blame other people 
right? It's not my fault is the mantra of the story the world is telling you. It is not my fault. Well, whose fault is it? I don't know, but it's not my fault, okay? And this isn't new, all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The woman made me do it, right? That you gave me. It's your fault, God. It's her fault. It's anybody's fault but mine. God doesn't tempt. Look, James is the New Testament Proverbs. Remember we talked about that? Proverbs is a collection of wisdom and James is his counterpart in the New Testament. And in Proverbs 19.3, if you want to just jot down this reference, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, says this, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then they're angry at the Lord. It's quiet in here. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, then they're angry at God. It's your fault, God. It's their fault. Here's the third thing. We're tempted by our own desires. It comes from within. My own brokenness. I don't know about you, but my tempter's voice oddly sounds like mine. Has the same accent I have. The bait fits the fish, right? The temptation is unique to you and tailored to you. Um, I was trout fishing one time on the Wataga, and this was the coolest experience. I was with a guide, and the first fish, the first trout we caught, he takes this, uh, um, what do you call it, a baster, or the thing you um, do your turkey with? Is that right? Okay. And he, I'm like, what is, why do you have a turkey baster? And he shoves it down the trout's mouth and squeezes everything in the trout's stomach out and then puts it all in his hand. And then he's like, this is what they're eating today. And then he changes the fly. And I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> I would have never thought to do that. It was amazing. We threw them all back. But it's it incredible. I'm like, he's like, they eat different things. And I thought, that's temptation. Like, what are we eating? And that's what the enemy does. Now, here's what sin is really quickly, okay? Sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. So, God wired up my heart for intimacy. What is the definition of intimacy? To know and to be known. God made me, God made you for intimacy, to know and to be known. But if I don't have that need met in a real life-changing relationship with Jesus and Jesus's people, I'll try to find it other places. And you can take every desire that you have, and if it's not met in the Lord and through God's people and his purposes, we'll try to meet it outside of those purposes and out of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so sin becomes this illegitimate way to meet these legitimate needs. The word that's used here, just really quickly, the Greek word is epithumia in verses 14 and 15. And here's the only reason why that's important is that word, it's a really neat word that means desire. And it can be both positive and negative depending on its tense and context. So it's the same word in Luke 21, epithumia, where Jesus says, I have desired to share this Passover meal with you, positive sense. But here it's used in a negative sense. And literally what it means if you're taking notes, this word desire is a distorted desire. That's what sin is. It's meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's a distortion of the truth, which by the way, is what the enemy is. It's a distortion of who God is, right? 
And so see if this sounds familiar, epithumia, this distorted desire. I willingly reach for what I know is going to burn me. And, and I love it, and then I hate myself for loving it. I hate it, but I hate myself even more for choosing to do it. Am I, am I the only one? So um, conviction or guilt is about what you've done. I reached for this knowing it was out of God's will, right? Knowing that it was, was not according to his plan for me, knowing that I shouldn't do it, okay? I'm convicted about that. But shame is how you see yourself. It's not that I did something wrong, it's that I'm wrong. Hear the difference? Conviction is I did something wrong. Shame is I'm wrong. And shame, everybody watch this, shame is jet fuel for temptation. Because now I'm very aware that I did this and I feel so terrible about myself and I think there's no hope, there's no way out of this. And so I just give into it over and over and over again. And so here's the thing, once we realize this important truth of what James is saying, that the problem comes from within me and not just around me and what's been done to me, we're getting close to Jesus. Let me say that again. Once we realize that the problem is within me, distorted desires, and not just around me or what has been done to me, we're getting close to Jesus. Because everyone listen to this, if you, if you miss everything else in the sermon and you get this, it would be enough. It's because I need a savior and not just a life coach or a helper or a teacher. I need a savior. The problem is within. Adam Young says, we'd all rather have an explanation than we would a savior. Let me just tell you why I am the way that I am. Let me tell you what other things have happened to me, legitimate things that have happened to you. And we miss that, no, there's something inside of me that's distorted and I need a savior. Jesus alone can step into the dark places of our hearts, friends, and help us with our distorted desires to change us from the inside out. Because here's the thing, once sin is full blown, it becomes a fixed habit. It grows and grows and grows until standing before us is a fire-breathing dragon that resembles a distorted version of our old selves. And death follows everywhere the dragon goes. It kills relationships. It kills security. It kills self-respect. It kills identity. It kills livelihoods, families, marriages. It kills hope. And so James says, remember what lies within. And then lastly, remember who, who is good, who is perfect. And spoiler alert, it's not us. He says, listen, verse 16, don't be what? Misled, my dear brothers and my sisters. Don't be misled. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God, our father who loves us. He created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes. He never casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. Because out of all of creation, you're his prized possession. You're the crown of his creation. And you may not feel that way today, but God has your picture in his wallet. You're his prized possession. 
and every good and perfect gift in our lives, every grace comes from the Father, not from within or from our, our own efforts. So James says, don't be misled. Don't allow distorted desires to drive the train of your thoughts. Remember that? That ultimately leads to the destination of death. And he's referencing here what John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, when he said, in Jesus, in him, in the word was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 6, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to pay attention and underline in verse 18. He chose to give birth to us by giving us what? His true word. And there's a double meaning here because Jesus was the word made flesh. So God the Father gave God the Son to us and the incarnation turned everything upside down and it brought life to what was dead. But he also gave to us his true word, his counsel, his scripture, his truth to live by. And this is why this is so important because there's a false story that's being told to you by the enemy and it comes through all kinds of different ways. And more than likely, it's being told to you, it's being narrated to you by your own distorted voice. And so the gift that God the Father who loves us and chose to give birth to us because we're his prized possession gives us the true story. God is the one who tells you the truth about yourself. He's the truth teller. He's the one that tells you who he is, who you are, and who other people are. He tells you the true story in a world that is distorted and wants you to believe a false story about yourself. That wants you to give in to these distorted desires and allow them to become sinful actions and words. And then allow them to continue to grow, to feed the python until it consumes you and everybody else around you and destroys every good and perfect gift that God gave to you. Because remember, the enemy of death wants to still kill and destroy everything good in your life. And Jesus, the one who gives life, is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And when faith is full blown, when it grows, it gives life everywhere it goes. Let me close with a story. This is from John Piper as he thinks about this whole idea of temptation and desire. He says, picture your flesh, your old self with that mentality of merit and craving and power and achievement and reputation and self-reliance and just all these things that we do to bow up and try to make it on our own. And he says, picture your old self, the one who thinks that you're on your own, that it, that, that it has to come from within or has to be your efforts to make it happen. He says, picture it as a dragon, a fire-breathing dragon living in a cave of your soul. And then you hear the gospel, the true story. You hear the true story and in it, Jesus comes to you and he says these words, listen to this. I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to take possession of the cave and I'm going to slay the dragon. Will you yield to my possession? It will mean a whole new way of thinking and feeling and acting and living. And you say, this is so powerful. You say, but that dragon is me. We have an artist here in the church that I gave them my notes and drew this picture. That dragon is me. Look in the mirror. 
And if we slay the dragon, I'll die. And Jesus says, yes, but I'll raise you to new life. I'll make you mine. I'll give you my heart. And you say, okay, what do I do? Because I'm used to doing things. What do I do? And he says, you trust. You believe. You do as I say. And as long as you trust me, we can't lose. Overcome by the beauty and the power of Christ, you bow and you swear eternal loyalty and trust to Jesus. And as you rise, Jesus puts a great sword, the sword of truth, into your hands and says, follow me. And he leads you to the mouth of the cave that lies within. And he says, now go in there and slay the dragon. And you look at Jesus bewildered and you say, I can't, not without you. And Jesus smiles and says, you learn quickly. Never forget my commands for you to do something or never commands to do it alone. Then you enter the cave together, you and Jesus. A horrible battle follows and you feel Jesus' hand on yours. At last the dragon lies limp and you ask Jesus, is it dead? And he answers, I've come to give new life. This you received when you yielded to my possession and swore faith and loyalty to me. And now with my sword of truth and my hand, you have felled the dragon of the flesh. It's a mortal wound. It will die. This is certain. But it has not yet bled to death. And it may yet revive with violent convulsions and do much harm. So you must treat it as dead and seal the cave as a tomb. The Lord of darkness may cause earthquakes in your soul to shake the stones loose, but you can build them up again and again. Have this confidence. With my sword and my hand on yours, this dragon's doom is sure. He is finished and new life has come. The bottom line today for James 1, 12 through 18. When, not if, when you are tempted, remember. When you are tempted, remember. Remember what is within and remember who is good and perfect and with you. To Christ be the glory today. Let's pray together. Hear the word of truth again. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, beloved, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death, to the dragon. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to you by giving you his true 
word, his true story, the gospel, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. God, give us the wisdom to know what you're speaking to each of us today. And would you also give us the courage and the faith to go and believe and do it. In Jesus' name, amen.